Hey everyone, this is Brett. I just wanted to give you a heads up. I've got my buddy James here. We did a very deep dive on a lot of topics today. Um, so we're going to do the main episode, and then after the credits roll, after the end, the usual wrap-up, there's going to be a whole other discussion about music in the 90s, in Britain, the Britpop era, the social, cultural, political atmosphere that this music came out of. It's really interesting. This may not be for everyone, so that's why I wanted to put it on the end. But if you are interested, stick around. The search for identity, that which uh, suits best to this uh, real self that you're discovering. If you know yourself well enough, then you discover what you are best suited for. And then that is what makes you happiest, too. Self-actualization uh, means the making real of the inner self, and that means what you love, what you're interested in, what excites you, what fascinates you, and that is the cause outside yourself, which paradoxically then becomes a defining characteristic of the self. Welcome to the Maslow Peak Podcast, presented by Spring State Media Group. I'm your host, Brad Griffin, and our guest today is James Ridgers, Program Manager and Self-Described Problem Solver at Blizzard Entertainment. James is a British expat living in Orange County, extremely bright guy, great sense of humor, all-around good friend. We'll talk to little Blizzard, a little bit about England, a little bit about America, a little music. This is going to be fun. I think you guys are going to enjoy this. James can be found on Twitter and Instagram, at EnglishGuy. Pretty straightforward. James, thanks for coming on the show. It's a pleasure to be here. Now, were you Twitter user number four? Was it Jack, Evan, Biz, and then you? Like, how did you get... <laughs> uh, no, I was number six. How did you get English guy? Um, I was an early adopter. All right. Uh, I, I, funny story, actually, I used to have the eBay handle, just some English guy. When I first moved to the States and I had some things to style as a sell, I was like, just some English guy. Just some English guy. Uh, at the time, Twitter was a... SMS-based service where there was no web front end and there was no such thing as a Twitter client. And so I didn't want to utilize a large chunk of my 140 characters with the just some mm-hmm. part of English Guy. And so I just chose English Guy and it happened to be available. I'm never letting it go. So did you also jump on Instagram immediately? Not a good English Guy. Actually, I wasn't an early adopter of Instagram. It just so happened that English Guy was available, was available. when I signed up. Yeah. Okay. So what does a program manager do? Oh, gosh. Well, you said that I am a self-described problem solver. And it's kind of tongue-in-cheek a little bit. But there is a uh, T-shirt that keeps being marketed to me on Facebook by some random T-shirt company Mm -hmm. that says, Senior Program Manager, solving problems you don't know you have in ways you can't possibly understand. (laughs) Okay. And... There's definitely humor to that, but there's an element of truth as well. A program manager really is there to remove roadblocks, solve problems, help people get their work done in the most efficient way possible, and also a little bit of kind of product ownership, service ownership, that kind of thing. It's a very uh, abstract term as far as the video game industry goes. Working at Blizzard, it's a little bit undefined in some ways and then heavily defined in other ways. Mm-hmm. But for the most part, yeah, I'm, I'm really about helping other people get their jobs done. Yeah. Can you say which games you work on? Yes, I work 
uh, exclusively on World of Warcraft at okay. the moment. Okay. So just like uh, Monty from episode 11? Yes. I work very closely with Monty. Oh, okay. Awesome. Yeah, anytime someone describes what they do as something like program manager, I always picture Homer Simpson from the Greatest Simpsons episode ever, You Only Move Twice, <laughs> right? where he's managing the three nuclear technicians, and he's yes. like, are you guys working as hard as you can? <laughs> yeah. Well, can you work any harder? Sure, boss. <laughs> it's like, all right. We that's, did something today. Basically, that's program management. <laughs> yeah, yeah, pretty much. Or the office space. I deal with the engineers so the customers don't so the have customers to. customers don't have to. I'm a people person. Yeah. What is wrong with you people? <laughs> I'm a people person. Can't you understand that? So are you on the solving technical code side? Or are you talking about timeline stuff? I mean, oh, I am, give I'm us a 10,000 foot view. Yeah, I'm not a coder. I, I do work with programmers and developers. I'm on the technology side of things primarily on uh, infrastructure and keeping the service up and running, so site reliability and availability. Um, there's also a fraction of my job, although it's it's growing day by day at the moment, on the, the tech stack for developers. So what tools do they need to be able to successfully continue to develop World of Warcraft, replacing old technologies with new technologies, old pieces of software with new pieces of software, Bear in mind, World of Warcraft has been around for 14 years, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. but every expansion kind of iterates and updates, and, and we treat each expansion as a new game. So that means utilizing the new develop newest development tools and um, the most kind of recent, not bleeding edge, but certainly leading edge uh, technologies and methodologies and software uh, packages out there. So I work very closely with the teams that are utilizing those, making sure that they're properly stood up and rolled out. Uh, any problems with them, I help solve and remo remove roadblocks, and then work with a team of reliability engineers to keep the lights on and keep things running. Okay. And how'd you originally get into this? By sheer luck. Sheer luck. So, actually, I shouldn't say it was luck, but there is an element of good fortune to it. So I was working for a company in Fountain Valley doing something extremely boring uh, back in 2008, uh, I had been with that company about four years. They were a company that produced retail point-of-sale software. So okay. not exactly the most exciting product that one can be passionate about. Right. right. There's only so many credit card transactions in a day that you can really dig. You weren't a lifer. I, no, I wasn't a lifer. <laughs> I wasn't sold on that. Um, but the church that I was going to at the time, there was a gentleman in the church who was in, uh, had been with Blizzard for a long time and became good friends with him without really knowing what he did or where he worked. And we had a couple of lunches that summer, and he happened to mention to me that Blizzard were looking for, at the time it was a, it was a technical project manager position, and would I be interested? Um, I said, yep, I will, here's my resume, by all means, I, it sounds interesting to me. And then it happened very, very quickly, and that I got a phone call actually on my 30th birthday was the call that I got inviting me in for, no, it was inviting me for a phone interview and then had a in-person interview. And within a month I had changed jobs and was at a brand new place working at Blizzard at Irvine. And that was nine years ago next month. Mm -hmm. And it's been a pretty incredible journey going from kind of technical project manager to now a, a senior program manager devoted to one of, one of our portfolio of games has been a, Super interesting journey. Awesome. Yeah. And what I like to ask everybody, what did you want to be 
when you grew up? An astronaut. Okay. 100% wanted to go. Man, that was fast. Moon. Yeah, I, I just, to this day, I'm still a space geek. I see the ISS flying over or some rocket launching or something. I just can't help myself. So Abs- what happened to that? I'm really bad at math. <laughs> <laughs> now, I'm, I know I'm, I know your degree is in electrical engineering, so you can't no, be... My, my degree is in management information systems. Oh, really? Yes. I have a bachelor's in management information systems and my master's in business management with a focus on project management. Okay. Yeah. So where did you pick up the electrical engineering that allowed you to solve the problems on our parade float? There were electrical engineering classes that I took ah. uh, back during my bachelor days. And actually prior to that, at um, in the UK, there's a kind of a step between high school and college that we call A-levels. And it was during that that I, I did a... a a series of classes on electrical and electronic engineering and for some reason have managed to retain that knowledge and I didn't fail that class. So. I, you might have heard me talk about this last week with uh, my buddy Jared, but it's it's alchemy to me, the watts and amps and volts and all of that. It's it's crazy. And he explained it to me a little bit, so I, I, I'm starting to understand it, I think. But every, as long as you appear to know what you're talking <laughs> about. Well, every, every year, for the listeners that don't live in Lake Forest, uh, the church I go to, Terranova, every year we have a parade float. Uh, where we are playing popular rock songs in the parade. And this is literally a float on a trailer pulled by a truck. And the all of our amps and everything are powered by generators or the truck's electrical system. And one year we were having some issues. Well, we have issues every year pretty much. Uh, but James was solving these and doing this math in his head. Well, this takes this many amps, watts, amps, something like that. One of them. One of them. One of those. And this, we should be getting this much from the truck, so we only need this much. And it was, it was like voodoo. <laughs> Just, I don't understand any we of that. We pulled it off, if I remember correctly. We did. Yeah, we did. Uh, thanks in no small part to those A-level classes you took, however long ago. <laughs> there we go. That would have been uh, almost twenty years ago now. Hey, problem yeah. solving. Problem solving. Problem solving. And here I am getting paid for it now. (laughs) Problem solving. So I mentioned problem solving in the lead-in, and not all the listeners may know this, uh, but I asked each guest to fill out a quick form, the production notes that help me craft the conversation. You know, the guest links, what they like to talk about, what they can't talk about, you know, contractually, trade secrets of their employer, etc. Your answers to what you'd like to discuss were, and I quote, the problem of solving problems, a more philosophical stance on life lessons learned from being a problem solver as a job that we're only as good as what we know and how the staunch pragmatist climbs the Maslow model. And, and we're going to get here too, the social, political, and musical significance of the Britpop era of the mid-90s. Parentheses, seriously, I've been reading a ton of memoirs on this lately, and it's a pretty fascinating subject as far as recent history goes. So problem solving. So what would you like to talk about, about the <laughs> philosophical stance of problem solving? You're never going to guess how I'm going to get to Britpop from this, Okay. Right? <laughs> All right. Well, listen, there is a problem with this concept of problem solving that I, I've been doing this for a career for close to 15 years. And the more I do it, the more I realize there's a ton I need to learn. And we're only ever as good as what we know. And by that, I mean, there's these statements of risk analysis and um, kind of evidential-based analysis that you do when you're trying to run a project or solve a problem or own a program 
where you talk about your known knowns, your known unknowns, and your unknown unknowns. Right? We don't know what we don't know. Mm-hmm. So when you're solving problems for as long as I've been solving problems, every now and then you come across a problem that is incredibly frustrating, either because you don't know enough to solve it or you, you try and solve it in a way that is unhelpful. And I'm that kind of personality where my idea of hell is trying to help people, but everything I do inadvertently makes things worse for them. So when that... Okay. That is my idea of personal hell. There was a Facebook quiz on this the recently. The meme for I the yes. Myers-Briggs. Okay, yeah, I took the same the thing. Yeah. thing. I, I right? saw the same thing, yeah. Absolutely, my, my personal hell would be that situation. So which type are you? Uh, I am an uh, ENFJ. Okay, I'm an ENFP. Oh, well, there we go close i am the champion i want you to realize all your wildest dreams <laughs> i am the and i want to help you get there pragmatist okay yeah that's I, why we did a once so well <laughs> there we go and so there comes times where you just have to accept the notion that when you're solving problems either for yourself or for other people you can't necessarily control this concept of needing to know everything that you might need to know to successfully solve the problem there's an element of managing risk and accepting that you're gonna to have to make decisions with incomplete information every now and then. And that can have a real emotional toll when someone else's success is hinging on your decision-making and your leadership and your direction. And overcoming that, the longer I do this, the more tenured I become, the more senior I get uh, within a company, or even just the perceived seniority because I've been there a long time and done mm-hmm. a lot of projects. Um, there are, there's elements of that that really can weigh on me emotionally and mentally as well and really bring me down. I mean, people talk about, man, I need a vacation. I've hit rock bottom a couple of times where it's like, I need to peace out of work for two weeks because this is stressing me out. Mm-hmm. And, but along with that journey of uh, understanding that those are the elements that you don't like, but you have to accept. It comes with the territory. There's also this really kind of beautiful dichotomy of accepting that there is something mysterious and unknown that really apply. I feel like applies to life in general. Like we we had a chat before we started recording about you know the life we build for ourselves and the things you say no to uh, tend to be a result of the things that you say yes to, mm-hmm. right? You say yes to one thing generally means opportunity saying no to cost. something else, opportunity cost. And opportunity cost as a, as a professional concept or as a personal concept, um, are things that I've, I've dwelt on in the last couple of years as really key concepts of happiness and understanding that my happiness is in my own hands. And so when I apply these things that I'm learning professionally about achievement and business continuity or whatever it might be, someone else's professional successes hinging on my decisions, there are uh, elements of that that I can directly take and apply to what is happiness in my life Mm -hmm. and what is it that will make me happy. There was this meme that I saw years ago now and I've, I've repeatedly posted it to Twitter and Instagram that says, it's a, it's a basic flow chart and it's like, are you happy? And on one side, it's yes. 
and it flows to keep doing what you're doing. Mm -hmm. And on the other side, it's no, and it flows to change something, and then it goes back up to, are you happy? <laughs> and and it's, it, it's, it's a very simplified, kind of an immature approach to this idea of personal happiness. But mm -hmm. I really feel like happiness is a problem that we try and solve from the moment we become kind of self-reliant, yeah. self-aware adults where we're trying to forge our way through life and make sense of this this thing we call existence. And we find it, people find it in so many different ways. But I've, I've found myself becoming more and more philosophical and taking lessons directly out of my professional experiences as a problem solver for other people and applying those philosophies and those thoughts to solving my own problems of am I happy in life? What really gives me purpose? What gives me meaning? what gives me fulfillment and I don't always get it right, right. but I've found myself in a place of accepting the risk of the unknown unknowns that sometimes I might make a decision on blind faith that this may or may not work out for me and sometimes it has and sometimes it hasn't and when it hasn't I go back to that simple flowchart it's time to change something yeah. I'm not happy change something am I happy now yeah keep doing what I'm doing mm -hmm. And of course, there's temporal measures to this. They don't, nothing lasts forever. Right. And happiness being a very subjective human emotion doesn't always last. There are external factors to this when we start talking about family and relationships. Um, and even our own brain chemistry, like we're, we're chemistry. wired to desire this thing. And then once we did it, it's not new and shiny anymore. And then we're on to fantasizing about the next new shiny thing. Coming down from the temporary high of having the shiny thing. Yeah. And so really, you know, when I kind of filled these notes out and was kind of waxing a little bit, bit lyrical about the problem of solving problems, that's what I'm driving at is that the, we, we're not going to be able to solve all our problems. There's elements in life that I feel we just have to accept, like this may or may not go right for us. Mm -hmm. And when we approach those with courage and conviction and uh, as a replacement for self-doubt, it feels a little bit better when we fail. It feels a little bit like, yeah, I, I, at least I took the risk. At least I, at least I stepped off the edge. And there's been, I mean, for me personally, there's been hurt along the way. It's meant one or two bad relationships that have ended up in a lot of personal hurt that has ultimately uh, led to my own personal growth and um, learning a bit more about myself. So my next round of decisions about happiness, they're a little bit more well-informed because... You run them through the algorithm. Yeah, that yeah. concept of the unknown unknown starts shrinking because I start knowing more about myself and I mm -hmm. start learning more about what, what consists the happiness of James. That was profound. That's the problem of problem solving. <laughs> Very nice work. <laughs> so was there a moment or a specific instance that you realized problem solving could be a job and it could be a job that you could have I've always enjoyed helping people ever since I was a kid there's been a part of me that has rejoiced in other people's successes it's that ENF part of you yeah yeah it is that there's when I when I see my friends and my family particularly my close friends that I know have fought hard for something and then they get that thing mm-hmm I can't help but feel great about it. I right. feel really great for them. Right. And uh, I'm, I feel fortunate that I can separate myself from that so that there's no jealousy or envy of yeah. someone else's successes. 
and that's just a part of my personality that I'm super thankful for. It's a good feeling. It it is a good feeling, and I know not everybody has it. I know there are people that struggle with envy and jealousy when they see their friends being successful. Yeah, and I've never, I've always, it's weird to talk about, but I've always wondered, like, how do you live like that? How do you live being jealous of other people? How do you live being envious or hateful of someone else's success? Like, good on you. Like, good for you, man. Like, it's good that this good thing happened to you. Like, I'm not mad that this good thing did not happen to me. I I don't know how people live like that. Yeah. We all have our own journeys and stories, right? And maybe one day that will be me and maybe it won't be. And who knows? Crotchety old man on your porch, you know. But as far as like, have I, when did I know that problem solving was a thing? I I don't know that there was a point in time. It's just been a thing that, that I've grown up with that when I can help someone, especially when it's a, an impossible situation for them, but I'm equipped to help, to contribute somehow. Mm -hmm. I've just naturally done it whether it is something long-term and and super involved or short-term and momentary. Um, I was walking through through Boulder City Center, winter 2015, right before Christmas, and with my girlfriend, and there was this, this homeless guy that came up to me and just very politely said, hey, is there any way that you could I've got my wife, my kids are sick. Can you, would you be willing to buy us a bowl of soup for the family? My kids haven't eaten today. And man, I'm not going to miss 20 bucks. Of course I'm right. going to buy the guy some soup. And so we found a deli and I was like, order what you want, man. Like it's, it's all you. And it's funny that it sticks with me because I remember his name. His name was Tony. And to this day, I hope things worked out for him. Right. You know that I don't miss that $20, but I don't think that I will ever forget that moment that he shook my hand and it was a very genuinely thankful, like really appreciate you helping me and my kids out moment. And if I can impact a life like that by helping solve a very simple momentary problem of, you just need to eat today, cool, yeah. I got you. Yeah, I, 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 that's just been a thing that I've, I've grown up with and call it altruism or, or a value that I got from my, my parents, I, I don't know. Um, because not all my family is like that, but it is something that I look at and realize not only has that helped me be a, just a good human being to other human beings, but it's equipped me to be successful in the way my career has gone and what I've chosen to do as a profession as well. Awesome. So what's a basic day like for you? It's a mix of routine and then non-routine. So every day there's a, a set of meetings that I attend every morning. Um, I am, I'm pretty routine driven from the moment I wake up, wake up early, work out if it's a workout day, breakfast, shower, put the dog upstairs and then go to work. It's just routine, routine, routine. Uh, when I get to work, it's immediate routine with emails, meetings. I try and make sure that my inbox is as low as it possibly can be to start the day. So at least if I, if anyone's waiting on me for anything, I'll spend some time reading emails and addressing anything that, that might be asked of me in the immediate. And then I have a bunch of daily sync ups with other program managers, engineers, um, directors within the company. And then beyond that, the cool thing is I never really, other than long-term projects, I never really know what the day is going to throw at me. Mm-hmm. And there's always the inevitable 
small problem, either with a problem that, that comes up within an existing project or a small problem that I can walk over to someone's desk and help them solve it immediately. And I think it's what keeps me interested. There's, I'm not ADD by any stretch of the imagination. I have a really good focus, but I love the fact that I can be... I can be drawn out of a routine or out of something and be able to switch my focus to help somebody in a moment to break up the day. There's nothing monotonous about my job. Um, there's a large social element. I'll often have lunch with somebody or I'll bounce out of the office for lunch and go home and relax, watch some Netflix while I'm eating hmm. or have lunch with my dog or yeah. <laughs> you know, meet up with my girlfriend for lunch or something like that. Um, so, it, you know, and, and I'm, it, that's important to me to stop my mind from getting stale. There's an element of being a program manager as a problem solver that requires creativity and um, pretty fast reactionary reflexes to be able to think quickly mm -hmm. and know what I need to do. World of Warcraft is a live service. There's millions of people all over the world paying money every month to play this game. Mm -hmm. And I'm one of a, a team of a couple of dozen people that keep the lights on with that game. And so when something goes wrong, we don't want to disappoint our players and I don't want to disappoint my team members. So it, it's upon me to be able to react quickly and to understand and know what, we need, what needs to happen and when. And if I don't know, if this is an unknown unknown that I was just talking about, um, getting the right heads together and seeing what we can figure out. And that's a really large part of my day. Uh, every day something uh, will come up where, yeah, so let's have some creative conversation. Let's see if we can get to the root of this. And um, it feels good to go home at the end of most days. I'm not going to say every day, but most days feeling like, yeah, I really, I really did something today. Mm -hmm. Really contributed something today. Yeah. Yeah. Do you have to spend much time in game? Like someone says this thing is happening, do you have to go in the game and see exactly how that's playing out or how much time how much time do you spend playing the game and how much time do you have to spend playing the game if any? I don't There's no mandate upon me to spend a certain amount of time playing the game. Okay. Having said that, I love World of Warcraft. <laughs> okay. It is it is my Second favorite video game of all time behind the original Prince of Persia. Okay. And so as a result, I have I just I have this love affair with World of Warcraft storyline and characters and the whole lore of the universe is so deep and rich and uh, there's incredible elements of hope in the middle of despair and deliverance from from oppression and redemption from from bad mistakes and a terrible past that really resonates with me and so to be playing in a, a game that is designed to make you feel like you're having a, an effect on the world and an mm -hmm. effect on the storyline it's an addictive thing and for someone that loves to be loves to solve puzzles and be a part of uh, something that is greater than the sum of its parts, man, it's a great game. So I do play it. I admittedly, at the time of recording this, haven't, haven't logged into the game in probably over a month. But I'm no less engaged because you know we're, we're, we're making the game and I, I know what has been and I know what's coming up that we haven't announced. And uh, there isn't a day that that doesn't excite me. 
And so I do play the game. My girlfriend also plays the game, and we like to play the game together. So there's an element. It's a social game. So there's there is this element of, you know, well, let's have a date night in World of Warcraft. <laughs> and so we'll do that from time to time. And we have a guild of good friends, and um, that we'll hang out with once a year when BlizzCon rolls around, and then we go back to our online versions of those friendships for the other 364 days of the year, 363 days of the year, two-day convention. Um, but it is, uh, yeah, it's just one of those things that I, I don't think I'll ever stop playing this game for as long as the game is online and available, whether I work at Blizzard or not, there's a piece of World of Warcraft that will always, uh, my heart will always be there. Yeah. I remember, and I talked to Monty about this, but I remember after the Paris attacks, there was that thing going around the internet where it was a picture of a bunch of people in a chapel in World of Warcraft like mourning. Yeah. And... I just saw this image scrolling through Facebook, whatever, and I just remember being like, wow, this is really incredible. You know, people gathering in a virtual world in a virtual church to mourn a real-world yeah. attack, and it just, it was powerful. It is powerful, and there's something that I think, it's it's demonstrative of the notion, or rather the fact, that behind every avatar is a real person. Mm-hmm. Behind every virtual character is a human being with a heart and a mind and this is just another form of media where there's an outlet for those kind of outpouring of compassion and love and um, the community and coming together and for all the bad rap that online gaming gets about trolls trolls, and griefers griefers, poisonous community people um, uh, hurling verbal abuse at you online for being bad or telling you to get good or whatever, um, there's, there's a stronger community of good mm-hmm. that every now and then when something bad happens in the real world, it gets highlighted because people will come together. Mm-hmm. That. And that was, I, you just brought up a really good example, but it's one of many good examples. There was a thing very recently, um, there's a this kind of community-driven thing that has got become viral in the world of Warcraft that every year we now have a thing called the Running of the Gnomes, which is an event that occurs in World of Warcraft where you can log in and take part, and it's a sponsored event, and you pay a little bit of money up front to do it, but you you create a brand-new level one gnome, and you show up at a certain part in the world with hundreds or thousands of other people, and you literally run naked. Your little character is running <laughs> naked from one part of the world to another through all kinds of dangerous traps. And, and um, this started as a community event. Blizzard got on board with it this year and officially kind of created a sponsorship kind of thing around it. Um, but it's just one of these things where that was done to raise money. I believe that one was for breast cancer awareness um, or breast cancer research. I forget the exact cause, but the the concept of virtual world togetherness and community as a representation of the hearts and minds of the real people behind them that's so prevalent in world of warcraft we've seen it for the the 14 years that that game has been around and we're going to continue to see it and not just in world of warcraft we're seeing it in the way people are celebrating the diversity in overwatch mm-hmm. um, it's a great example uh, the way people come together to celebrate the successes of individuals in Hearthstone tournaments, which is our uh, mm-hmm. collector trading card game, collector's card game. Yeah, um, there's good behind these games, and Blizzard is at the heart of it a, a pretty benevolent 
company. I mean, it's still a business. We're still trying to make money. But there is a heart and a soul to the company as well Mm -hmm. that is really well represented in the players that play the games that Blizzard make. And I think we appeal. I think the games appeal to those kind of people as well. Yeah, I mean, WoW is a a simulcrum of society, of reality. You know, they're not all griefers and trolls. You know, I mean... I mean, you can even tie that back to Tony. I mean, Tony didn't really want to stab you. You know, he didn't want to buy drugs. He really wanted to feed his family. And you yeah. were a real person that met his needs. Yeah. I mean, that's I mean, that's hopefully how society works. I mean, I, I hope that there's more good people out there than evil. You know, I yeah. hope that most gamers are good and not, you know, out to harass people. I'd like to think that most people are inherently good. And uh, I think your world is a hopefully good representation of that. I think what touches me the most about my involvement in World of Warcraft is those moments where I hear really personal touching stories that I can connect with. As an example, there is a family that is coming to BlizzCon in November that I don't know personally, but I heard through a friend of a friend. Um, they, the husband and wife had two sons. Their oldest son was killed in a car crash last year. And they, the two sons were huge World of Warcraft fans and players and Overwatch players. And as a way of coming together as a family, they spend time now that the husband, the wife, and the, um, the one son, uh, they come together and they play World of Warcraft. And that's how they've bonded. And they share that memory. And that's how they've grieved the loss of a son and an older brother. And to to know of this story and know that for whatever my small part in World of Warcraft is feeds into this family's healing and this family's grieving and this this family's celebration of uh, the the son and the brother that they had for I think he was 18 or 19 when he died um that I'm super excited about that and I can't wait to meet this family and um you know that there is unintended privilege and positive consequence that comes out from this being not it's not just a job you know there's a almost a moral responsibility that comes with something that people can connect with each other through Mm -hmm. so when you tell people you work for blizzard you work on world of warcraft you're a problem solver what's the most common reaction so the thing is i don't really when people ask me what i do i don't say that i'm a program manager i don't say that i'm a problem solver because i hate to me, I hate giving that answer, like, what do you do? I'm a program manager. Mm. It doesn't really say anything about me right. at all. Right. So what I say is I make video games. And that is such a broad and nebulous, wide-ranging answer that it inevitably leads to more questions and more conversation. Mm-hmm. And it's a very deliberate choice of mine because I love to talk to, with people and I love to hear people's stories and... When I say I, I make video games, why, the question is, well, what games? What do you do? What part of games? Are you a designer? Are you an artist? Are you mm. a writer? Uh, what are you? No, you know, of course no, it gets down to, no. I'm like, no, I'm none of the exciting <laughs> things. I, I'm a program manager and I help software engineers and, and infrastructure engineers execute on projects. Um, but it, it creates a point of engagement mm. and a point of interest that for me, quite selfishly, introduces a point of personal connection with someone. Mm-hmm. And that is one of my favorite moments in connecting with someone is the moment we can share a story, the moment we can have 
just one little bit of common ground to connect over. Uh, it's pretty special because sometimes I, f I find that I connect with people that I know I'll never connect with again. Might be a stranger on a plane or, you know, the dude in the street or a fan at BlizzCon. And if I can share 5, 10, 15 minutes of my life, I'm not just talking about what I do, but then that leading for me to ask them questions and um, having a point of connection. There's something really special about a path that crosses once and is unlikely to to cross again. I don't know. I think maybe that's a kind of an abstract philosophy of mine, but I don't, I don't, there's value in that. Yeah. No, I'm always, yeah. I've always been one of those people that I like talking on the airplane. Like, what's your deal? What are you into? You know, I mean, that's, it's kind of why I do the podcast, but yeah, so I, I mean, like didn't know people like learning how they tick and what makes them think about stuff. And yeah. And I said this to my girlfriend just a few weeks ago when we were in an airport, we were flying to London. We were going on vacation and we were sat at the bar waiting for our plane and I was just people watching as people would go by. Mm -hmm. And I said to her, I said, you realize every single person that walks by, the thousands of people that come through here today, everyone's got a story. Everyone's going somewhere or they've come from somewhere and they've got reasons for that and we'll never know, but like everyone has a story. And I, I feel like we gloss over that a lot in life. Like we just, just by sheer scale and magnitude of the number of people that could cross our paths, the people that drive past us on the freeway or sit next to us on a train, there's a story and there's a person behind that. And it's enriching to be able to hear something outside of my own universe. There's, I don't know if I've ever told anyone this, but there's nothing that makes me feel smaller in the universe than being at the airport or being on the subway in New York City. Nothing makes you feel smaller in the universe than being on mass transportation. Every one of these people has a story. Every one of these people is either going to do something or trying to get back home to their family. Yeah. It's, it's crazy. It's pretty humbling. Yeah. Yeah. The world is so big, yeah. you know, going to a city in another country, you know, yeah. all these people have lives. I am here intruding on their reality. You know, they're just trying to go about their day. They don't want to rob me. Well, some of them do, <laughs> but for the most part, all of these people are just trying to do about their routine and I'm intruding on them. Right. You know, right. It's crazy. So what has been your biggest triumph professionally, personally? What do you think? My greatest triumph has been coming to terms with my own limits and my own failures. And I don't make any secret of the fact that uh, I was in the church and now I'm not. I've gone through a journey where I've questioned my faith mm -hmm. and I've come out the other side believing and thinking something opposite to what I used to. Um, I was married, I'm now divorced. There's definite f changes and failures in my past, but it's landed me in a place where I can say with real confidence today that I think I know who I am as a person. I know what I stand for. I know what I don't stand for. And I like who I am. As arrogant as that might sound, I, I like the person that I have become. It's a good place of, to be. Through all of that. I, I feel like when people go through such drastic changes, there's always a chance that, that people come out the other end angry and bitter and um, uncompassionate and kind of just losing some of that human nature that makes us be want to be good to each other. 
And for me, it's been the opposite where these kinds of journeys have the triumph over adversity and all of those has made me a kinder individual. And it's introduced more patience, more compassion. I still fail at it a lot. Of course, I'm human, but um, the James of 2017 is a person that I like far more than the James of any of the 38 and a half preceding years. That's a good place to be. How about any biggest failures or disappointments, things that didn't work out the way you wanted them to? In, yeah, I think that it's fair for me to say that my, my biggest disappointment actually rests more in the, the ideals of wanting to please a parental unit. My father was an incredibly impressive musician, incredibly impressive. Was a military bandsman for 20 years. He was in the Queen's Guard for much of that time. After after coming out of the military, he played the West End Theater Circuit under Andrew Lloyd Webber in the early 80s. Wow. Uh, Played a couple of his big shows. And he had a real desire for me to follow in his footsteps. Uh, both into the military and then also as as a professional musician. And while I, his strongest legacy that he'll ever leave with me is the gift of music, there is a part of me that regrets disappointing him in that manner. And especially now, I'm just about the age that he was when I was born. Hmm. And there is, I don't have children, but there is a part of me that says, yeah, if if I had a kid... I would kind of want him to do what what I do and follow in my footsteps. And so I'm starting to, at an emotional level, relate to that. And I think I'm coming to an understanding where that feels like a missed opportunity to me. That feels like I could have had an adventure with music and with the military that wouldn't have lasted my whole life and it wouldn't have defined me, but might have, have heightened the seed that he took time to sow into me as far as musicianship and music was concerned. Yeah, those are always weird timelines when you... I remember being 19, when my parents got married at 19, mm-hmm. and I remember thinking, I'm in no position to get married. Like, I how did they do this? Like, And then I got married at 22, you know? And it's... Right. And then now I'm 34, and it's like, how did I get married at 22? Oh, my God. I'm the youngest of six. So yeah. by the time my dad was my age, he had five kids already. Wow. And I don't even have one child. And I don't know. <laughs> I'm actually not planning on having children either. But there is, yeah, and to answer your question, I think that when I really dwell on it, of all the things that I could point to in my life, being divorced, spending years struggling with a belief system, whatever it might be, I think that the... I, I I would I would love to have made my father prouder of that thing that he took time to sow into me. Going forward, how do you define success for yourself? Uh, am I happy? Really comes back to what we we're talking about right at the mm-hmm. beginning of this. Mm-hmm. Uh, money comes and goes. People come and go. I can live here, I can live there. I've moved halfway around the world once. I could do it again. Uh, But am I happy? Am I content? There is a difference, by the way, I feel between satisfaction and contentment. Satisfaction, I don't think anyone really ever achieves. I think people say that and people think that and might kid themselves a bit. Um, But am I content with where I'm at? And 
that for me is is my guiding principle. And right now the answer is yeah, I'm really happy with my life. I'm content with exactly where I'm living and I'm in a, a very, very loving, very edifying relationship. Um, I've got a job that I'm incredibly passionate about and fulfills me professionally and mentally and, and you know, I get to do something that is putting video games in record books that will stand for decades to come. I don't have a complaint. Uh, but if something were to change that were to start to poke that unhappiness button, I'd change something. Go back to the flowchart. Yeah, I'd go right back to the flowchart. If this hadn't worked out, if Blizzard hadn't hired you, what do you think you'd be doing? I mean, it's hard to tell, right? Like the, the what ifs. I know where I was before before I started a journey to define what what made me happy. There were dead-end jobs, meaningless, not leaving much of a stamp or legacy on the world. Uh, a marriage that, on the face of it, was probably happy but deeply unsatisfactory. Um, certainly, that contentment I was talking about was notably absent. I don't know if... I would have found a catalyst for that journey or not in that situation. It certainly was the move to to Blizzard. And um, when my mother passed away in 2008, she had early onset Alzheimer's and passed away nine years ago now. Um, there was an element there that also was like, gosh, life is life is fleeting. She was 68 when she died. Man, I've I've got to I've got to figure this this journey out. Yeah. Um, so I think that I still probably would have gone through some of those experiences and I'd like to think I would ultimately land up with the same kind of thoughts about life. Um, but who's to say? I don't know. Yeah. That's always a hard question for people to answer. Yeah. Because it's either either you really don't know or you're so enthralled in what it is that you're doing that you can't really see your life being any other way. Mm. All right, home stretch. Last few questions I'd like to ask everybody. Okay. I feel like this is the inside the actor's studio thing where it's, you know. <laughs> What's some of the best advice you've ever gotten? My dad said to me, there are two guiding principles that you should always live by. One is tie your shoelaces because you never want your shoes to fall off. And the second is, if you are any less than five minutes early, you are always late. And these are military concepts from when he's in the army. And he was being allegorical in a lot of those things mm -hmm. where he was really talking about preparedness. Yeah. He was really driving at the value of hard work, the value of applying thought to what you're doing. But they stick with me. And to this day, by the way, I am five minutes early for every single meeting that mm -hmm. I'm invited to, if, I, if possible. Uh, and I've... I repeat it now. If if you're anything less than five minutes early, you're already late to my meeting. I'm one of those two. Yeah. I've I've always been try to be at the place at the time or a little early. And I heard it a, a few years back that kind of made sense. Like if you're late to something that other people are relying you on, that means you're you're essentially disrespecting them. Like whatever I was doing is more important than what you guys were doing. I was about to say that there is also the respect for other people's time and other people's work and other people's knowledge and heart and brain that as uh, an ENFJ I don't 
I don't ever want to get on the wrong side of that. Right. It feels bad, man. Yep. You don't want to let people down. Yep. Don't I know. Want to let I know. Down. I know the feeling. <laughs> so we talked a lot about playing music. We talked about gaming. We talked about running. Uh, anything else you like to do for fun? I have, in the last year or so, developed a very strong enthusiasm for wine. Okay. To the point where I am. It is an aim of mine, hopefully this year, to begin the journey to becoming a certified sommelier. Awesome. And I, I kind of have this vision of once I'm done with the world of program management, of retiring into a sommelier kind of role at some <laughs> restaurant or bar somewhere, I'm never going to stop working. I just yeah. The idea of retiring and not having anything to do um, terrifies me. So I would much rather retire into something less demanding and less corporate. And if it's something I'm enthusiastic about, like wine, wine is fascinating, man. The world of wine is like way more varied and interesting than I ever imagined it would be. And I've caught the bug badly on this one. There's always a bottle open in my house. All right. That's fair. Anything you're excited about right now? Movies you just saw, books you're reading, albums you just listened to? Anything you want people to know about? TV shows, anything? I have yet to see Wonder Woman. And okay. I am very, very excited to see this. I'm a DC Universe fan, and I'm a Gal Gadot fan based off of her um, kind of secondary role in the Dawn of Justice movie where we first saw Wonder Woman. Very, very excited. She was the best part movie. of that movie, hands down. I enjoyed that movie, man. Uh, there was I watched it a couple of weeks hey. ago. It wasn't as bad as I remembered it being. Right. It's but a it comic should book have movie. been better. Yeah. It's a comic book movie. It's not gonna be war. How and many peace. times do we have to see poor Martha and Thomas Wayne get shot? It's true. How many yeah. times? Yeah, it's true. Um so very excited to see that. I'm not much of a television show watcher. I don't watch much TV. Uh I would there are a couple of shows that I do watch, but I'm more inclined to read a good book or something along those lines. Um, but yeah, I think right now, if, I, if there's something I'm in the moment excited about, I think I'm, we're going to go, my girlfriend and I are going to go and see Wonder Woman this weekend. So I'm very excited about that. Yeah, as the uh, father of two daughters, I, I still need to go see it. Cause I, uh, she was the best part of that movie, and the reviews are really good. Um, yeah. Our older daughter, Allie, is four, four and some change. And she's obsessed with Wonder Woman. I don't know how she knows about Wonder Woman. I, I think it's from seeing Wonder Woman on stuff at Target and maybe from school. I don't know. I don't know how she knows about Distinct Wonder Woman. Right. But um, she's obsessed with Wonder Woman. And a couple months ago, there's a Wonder Woman like animated cartoon movie that I had recorded. And she knows what violence is. And she knows you know, she can't watch really violent stuff yet. And I don't know when I'm going to introduce her to this stuff, but I really want her to watch Star Wars. I really want her to watch Harry Potter, and I don't know when the right time is. But anyway, so we, uh, so I had this movie recorded, and we, I told Allie, all right, we're going to turn this on. It may be too violent. I don't know if we're going to be able to watch this. And within like 30 seconds of the credits, it's this giant sword battle. People didn't run through. <laughs> it's like, all right, Allie, we can't watch this. Sorry. <laughs> But she, she really wanted to watch it. But she understood. Maybe when I'm older, yeah. <laughs> she gets it. <laughs> I, there is something that I'm actually very excited about. The Los Angeles Galaxy have sucked for the first half of this season. They have, that's true. And they've just started winning games. But apparently they only win on the road. But <laughs> that's I'm true, a, I've seen I'm that. I'm okay with this. 
We're going to an away game in Seattle in September. I'm very, very excited about this. How do you feel about LAFC coming in? Are, are Look, you about more soccer, more football is good, another team is good, or are you like on the rivalry, et cetera, et cetera? I am all about the expansion of Major League Soccer. Mm-hmm. That is a, a good thing. Major League Soccer is now the fourth most popular sport in the United States. It displaced hockey two years ago and has maintained that status. Mm-hmm. Los Angeles is, does not have a big enough market to support two teams. They already this, tried this. This was proven with Chivas USA. Right. LAFC stands for look, another fake Chivas. <laughs> and uh, yes, I am also on the rivalry train. There is no one that nobody will ever convince me that Los Angeles FC will are a good team, are worthy of the name Los Angeles. There is one football team in Los Angeles. It is the LA Galaxy. We are. It's where class and history exists in MLS. No one will top it. They <laughs> nailed it with the design of that brand. They did. It feels like Los Angeles. It feels yep. like Art Deco, they're LA doing buildings. Everything right. Listen, they nailed it. Pragmatically, they're doing everything right. Emotionally, I hate it. <laughs> with all that we've talked about, what inspires you to keep going? How do you keep yourself motivated? I see life as something with which or something for which I have the capability to make it mean whatever I want it to mean. And I can, I find purpose in the knowledge that I am very small and insignificant in the world. I believe we're here once. I don't believe there's anything after death. So I have one opportunity to affect some change whether that is at a global scale or whether that is a very individual scale, there is something very beautiful and exciting about the fact that I get to exist. And um, you can go either way on this. Some people Mm -hmm. find uh, incredible beauty in that. Some people find that to be a hopeless situation. I find incredible beauty in it. And so that's what pushes me on, that spurs me on to make the most of these moments that I get I don't know when I'm going to die, but when I do, it's permanent. And I don't want to waste that time. I don't want to waste that time. There's there's hearts to touch. There's lives to change. Soup to there's, hand out. There's soup to hand out. There's also really cool stuff to see on this planet. I want to see it all. I want to do it all. I won't see it all or do it all, but I, I'm going to make the most of it. I'm going to do the best I can. If you were able to go back to the start of the journey, anything you'd tell yourself? Save and save early. Oh, and get a prenup. Very honest. (laughs) Any last words of advice? Life, art, creativity, anything? Let's be good to one another. There's a lot of division, a lot of hate in this country, in this world. It's really easy, I think, to get disillusioned by things like the racial tension and even the extreme political divide that we're just faced with every single day in the United States that's also boiling over to other countries. Brexit is a mess in Europe. Um, At an individual level, I think we're better than this. And uh, I think it's really important that as individuals, we rise above these differences, especially when they're polar differences. And at least try and understand and meet our fellow humans with a little bit of kindness, a little bit of compassion, a little bit of love. A hug goes a long way. 
and everyone's fighting a battle that we know nothing about. And so, um, take the guard down a little bit. There you go. Well, James, this has been really fun. It's we been did great. A, I've had a blast. We talked about a lot of stuff off air and on air. Uh, we covered a lot of ground. Uh, if you're interested in hearing the deep dive on British political history and how that tied into the musical movement of the Britpop era in the mid to late 90s, stay tuned. Uh, James can be found on Twitter and Instagram at English Guy, where you can see his recent travels, the bottle of wine he's got open, <laughs> the things he's into. This has been the Mazlapede Podcast presented by Spring State Media Group. Our producer is Jesse Edmond. If you liked what you heard today, you can find all of our episodes on the web at themazlapede.com. You can subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play Music, or SoundCloud to have new episodes automatically pushed to you. If you can rate and review the show, that helps a lot. You can also check us out on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at The Maslopete. Thanks for listening, and you'll be hearing from us next week. And again, there's more coming right after this. James, thanks for coming on the show. Thank you. All right, so the other thing you said you wanted to talk about, the social, political, and musical significance of the Britpop era of the mid-90s and why music since then has sucked. Seriously, I've been reading a ton of memoirs on this lately, and it's a pretty fascinating subject as far as recent history goes. So, the Britpop era of the mid-90s. Are we talking about Oasis? Are we talking about Robbie Williams? Are we talking... What are we talking about here? Let's be clear. Robbie Williams was never Britpop. Okay. He was... He was... He was the... immediate post-Britpop era. That's kind of irrelevant to the discussion. So we're talking about the Oasis, Blur, Cast, Suede era, Elastica, these kind of things. Okay, I do want to say, I think Wonderwall is the second greatest song of all time. It is a fantastic song. I think it is the second greatest, best, well-written, best-performed song of all time. number one would be? I Want You Back by the Jackson 5. That's a great song as well. That is the greatest song ever written. You can't get off that hook. So here's the thing. I should lend some context to this because otherwise it's not going to make a whole lot of sense about why I feel that this is an important thing to talk about and there are lessons to be learned out of the Britpop era because it will never happen again and we'll get to this as well. About three or four years ago, I was on a plane back from London and I was flicking through the in-flight entertainment looking for something to watch. And I came across this documentary called No Distance Left to Run. And this is a documentary of the rise and fall and then ultimate kind of public redemption of the band Blur. And their, their significance in Britpop and how they fell off the radar and then had this incredible comeback at Hyde Park some 10 years after their previous album. Really quite a poetic and moving documentary because it was more about the emotional and mental impacts on the band, told mostly from Damon Albarn, the lead singer's mm-hmm. perspective. He talked a little bit about his what led to his involvement in the Gorillas, but how his heart was really with, with Blur. And after I la- watched that and then landed in Los Angeles, the very next day I went and found the DVD and bought it and watched it again. I was that captivated by it because it, it be- there was something about that that... St- I identified with because I had lived through it. There were things that it was recalling where I could go, oh shit, yeah, I remember that. I remember that happening. I remember that song being released. I, rem- I had that album. Mm-hmm. And 
the way that it is approached and and talked about from the creator's perspective, having been a consumer of it so long ago, really started to lend some new perspective. And so I read a couple of books. There's a book I read called A Bit of a Blur, which was written by uh, Blur's guitarist. And then I read a book called Love and Poison, which is a biography of the band Suede. I know they'd never had much of a presence in the US, Mm. but they were huge in Europe, very big in the UK. One could argue that they really were the catalyst for Britpop. Okay. And sort of read books here and there. And then last November, there was this documentary release called Supersonic. And it was made by the same documentary team that did No Distance Left Left to Run. Supersonic is about the first two years of the meteoric rise of Oasis. Mm -hmm. So definitely Maybe album and then um, What's a Story, Morning Glory. Kind of the height of their Oasis mania in the UK. And similar kind of thing, interviews with Noel Gallagher, Liam Gallagher, even other family members. And what I realized coming out or coming off of watching that, read a couple more books, and what I realized is that there is an Ouroboros nature to the conditions that caused the Britpop movement and the, the conditions that the movement caused. And by that, I mean Britpop occurred right at the tail end of 17 years of conservative government. In okay. Great Britain, right? Thatcherism, the Margaret Thatcher right. era, and then under John Major, total was 17 years of a conservative government. And so that's all I had ever grown up with. Margaret Thatcher came to power the year I was born. And that meant there was a whole generation of people that had known nothing but a political system that, that had willingly or unwillingly disenfranchised the low-income and working-class communities around the UK. And all this music, the the bands like Oasis and Blur and Pulp and Suede and Elastica were being born out of a generation frustrated with the fact that they didn't have a voice anywhere. There was nothing that represented their left-leaning, socialistic, um, almost anarchistic views on the society they wanted to live in. And so they were grabbing guitars and writing songs and creating bands. And at some point, something broke and that generation latched on to these bands like Oasis and mm-hmm. Blur. And of course, there's, there's money-making record companies behind it that are going to exploit that and throw the full weight of a marketing machine to make Oasis sell a million records. But as someone who lived through it, there was something about that that, now 20 years the other side of it, I look back and go, man, yeah, I really actually did identify with that. There's a reason why I was listening to that. There's a reason why I would wake up and throw on Morning Glory or throw on Mm -hmm. Park Life or throw on a Suede album because it it represented not necessarily what I wanted to say but how I felt. Yeah. And you can also argue that that generation of listeners – were coming up on, they were the young voters. They were going to turn 18 for the next election in 1997. Mm -hmm. And it was that movement that you can argue helped Tony Blair and the Labour Party 
swing the pendulum way to the left in an extreme landslide victory and have such an everlasting consequence on British society, on the social landscape, on the political landscape, on the decisions that came from the British government post 9-11 uh, with various wars and stuff like that and how we approached it, there are so many pointers back to that, that young 18-year-old, 19-year-old voter that was, was driven by this voice of anarchy, this voice of liberalism, this voice of socialism coming out of bands like Supergrass and Oasis and this, this Britpop era. And... I have a real deep appreciation for having been a part of it that I didn't have while it was happening because I am convinced, and I, I say this almost unassailably, it will never, ever, ever, ever happen again hmm. because we live in a world now where, yes, communities are still disenfranchised. There are um, political regimes around the world. One could even argue here in the United States in certain places that is um, systematically exploiting privilege and disenfranchising mm -hmm. low-income or racial minority communities mm -hmm. or religious minority communities. But we also live in a world where we have Twitter and we have Facebook. And you want a voice? Yeah, there it is. There's 140 characters yeah. for you right here. You want to go yell at a politician? You can do it at the click of a, of a button now. And so there isn't necessarily a need an a, a innate emotional need to identify with a, a movement that, yes, born out of music, but is far greater than the music itself, that is really represent, representative of um, a heart that is frustrated yeah. and a, a young society that is growing up annoyed and angry at what it's observing as, as a political regime that they just don't identify with. I remember seeing that take on November 9th, you know, well, there's going to be some good punk rock to come out of this. You know, there's going to be some good art that comes out of this. I think that's true. And it's likely that there is going to be good music that comes out of it. And even today, there's still great music coming out of the US and, and the UK. But as a, as a representation of a voice or a, a movement that carries a momentum and an inertia of an entire generation of people... Mm -hmm. I don't think that we'll ever see that again. And I don't think that it will have the impact on the social or political landscapes that it had during that, that those years of like 93 through kind of 97, 98-ish. And everything that's come after it has just been terrible. It's had no meaning. Now, half a generation, maybe not a full generation, half a generation before that, though, You've got The Clash. You've yeah. got Sex Pistols. Yeah. You've got The English Beat. You know, you've got the whole two-tone, everyone is equal movement. What What's the gap between there and 96, 97, 98? Because you would think that that movement, you know, 78 to 84, it, I know... I know Margaret Thatcher. I don't know the other prime minister you were talking about. John Major. But I know that there was some oppression going on and some mm -hmm. definitely real conservative stuff going on in England. But mm -hmm. you would think that that wouldn't have stopped. Like the feelings expressed in Guns of Brixton. Guns of Brixton is one of my all time low key favorite songs. And I can't explain why, but there's something about that when they kick at your front door, like just that feeling of oppression. Like I, I can't relate to that at all. Right. But how effectively that song communicates that feeling. There's something about it that's right. always got its hooks in me. 
Right. It's low-key one of my favorite songs, and I don't know why. Right. Like, what's the gap between Guns of Brixton and Oasis? Like, what happened yeah. in the middle there? So the gap, I think, is the, the 78 through 84 anarchist punk, even some of the new romantic stuff of the, of the early 80s, synth pop but kind of rebellious synth pop were born out of reaction to something that that these guys didn't want to happen right didn't want a conservative government thatcherism was bad from the outset and it was certainly a middle and upper class driven result of an election that caused that to occur and when it led to things like the Falklands War that the the majority of young people were opposed to at the time but we're kind of stuck with it because we've the country's elected this woman and she's going to be in power for at least four years probably five during that time if you listen to the nature of those songs they're songs of rebellion rather than songs of uprising they're Mm -hmm. songs of just being angry and annoyed and pissed off at the situation with with an understanding that's like I, I just have a right to moan and whine about this I can't really do anything and I'm frustrated mm-hmm. on the tail end of that what what led to the connection to songs like um, don't look back in anger and some might say and park life and animal nitrate were yes they were songs of anger and songs of kind of this dystopian working class we've been forgotten part of society but there was also great hope in that that listen there's an opportunity coming up there's an election coming up the landscape is changing we're having an effect and let's band together and get stronger and even tony blair had he used an oasis song in his campaign when he got into number 10 downing street he held a reception and who did he invite noel gallagher and damon albarn <laughs> and they Damon Albarn, I think, rejected it. But Noel Gallagher went and schmoozed it up with the new prime minister who was now representing the working class and everything that, that he, had trying to, he had tried to be a voice for for three or four years up at that point. And I think that there's a, it's an interesting contrast where you've gone from light to darkness in the 78 through 84. Mm-hmm. And the other side of that is darkness back into what would be perceived as the left-leaning light of just you know live and let live kind of mentality um that now the pendulum seems to have swung back the other way we have right. conservative governments both sides of the atlantic at this time and um you'll notice that the music that is quote unquote the voice of a generation right now is bands like um the 1975 which while are great and i really enjoy and i I've love seen them. them twice i love them fantastic don't hold much of a message Right. And and isn't something that you're going to say, yeah, these this is world changing or life changing, well, country changing. It's music. the it's the journey of the next generation, like the next generation. We were we were talking earlier about happiness, the search for happiness, the search for identity. Yeah. And I think that, you know, Maddie from the 1975 is struggling with that. You know, maybe fame isn't what I thought it was going to be. You know, I'm still the same person. Like, fame hasn't changed me. Maybe it's made me worse, you know. And I think he's struggling with that and writing songs about it, which is, I think that's indicative. Like, the art always reflects the mood of the time, you know. And I think, you know, when you think about what's happening in hip-hop, you know, hip-hop is either trap music, which is paranoid, you know, dark paranoid, which I think reflects the 
you know, the racial tension in our country, or it's, you know, leaning towards Drake and the introspective, like, why am I sad? Why do I feel this way? Which, you know, a generation ago of hip hop wasn't acceptable at all. Right. Now it's like, why do I have these feelings? Who am I really inside? Like, am I this image I portray or am I really this person that has these feelings? I mean, I think, I think as our generation is really focused on finding work that is meaningful and finding the, you know, even what the podcast is about finding our true self, you know, I think the music reflects that. And that's one of the things I, I, I really love the 1975. Those guys are great yeah. songwriters. Fantastic. I think we've communicated this on social media. I'm not sure those guys actually played those songs on that album. Like there's so much nuanced musicianship in those songs that they, they make the, the hard things sound easy. And yeah. there's just so much of those little moments of like, did these, do these 25-year-old kids really play these songs? But what separates this from what Britpop-era bands were doing is Britpop-era bands, they didn't care about that. They would, they were, everything was louder than everything else. Mm -hmm. And it was turn it up to 11. It was the spinal tap version of the <laughs> 90s. It was make it loud. I need this guitar louder than this guitar, but it's all got to be loud. And... You, even when you listen to the production quality, like the drums are drowned out. Like that doesn't happen today, right? Production quality was different and it was supposed to be representative of the, the live energy and, and the, the attitude that these songs were played with when they're played on stage. And that just doesn't, I don't think we're ever going to see that again. I don't think there's any reason for us to ever see that again because our outlets have changed the generation that has come up behind the Britpop generation have grown up with Facebook. They've grown up with Twitter. They've grown up with at least something like MySpace or a way to have a voice that mm -hmm. can reach millions without having to experience the frustration art. and make art yeah. with it. Yeah. Not to say that people aren't making art out of their frustration, but I don't think it's ever going to catch a wave and cause a, a true social movement like Britpop did. I've never thought about this that way, but the way... The way you just said that, you know, I, capturing my anxiety and making art out of it. I don't think I've ever put those pieces together. You know, right. I, I have a voice. Mm -hmm. I have Twitter. I have Facebook. I have this or that. We that, have podcasts. I mean, why are we doing this now? Because we're talking about this. We think someone wants to hear it. Yeah. <laughs> but I think that even kind of plays into how the music industry has changed. Like, it used to be all about albums. Like, And I've always been a full album guy. I want to listen to it from start to finish. I want to know exactly what you, the artist, what your frame of mind was. I want to see the album art. I want to see how it all ties together, you know. And we're getting into more of this streaming drip, drip, drip content, you know, where I'm always putting music out. I don't necessarily have a cohesive, this is what I was feeling at this time when I wrote these 12 songs, you know. And right. the next album, I may be feeling different. You know, maybe I was going through a bad relationship. Now I'm in a good relationship. You know, I've always been a full album guy. I want to hear the whole thing. I want to I want to get a sense of where your head was at. I want to touch it. I want to read the notes. I want to see the art. And we're, we're getting away from that. And I yeah. I I personally don't like that. Like I want I want to hear everything you had to say. But you're right. You know, I can say what I want to say in the blog post and then I can write these catchy pop songs and I don't have to do both of those things at once. Yeah. There are still elements of that around I think that it's a dwindling number and it's certainly the purest. Um, I, it was highlighted to me very recently when I was the most excited that I have been about purchasing 
any kind of album, and it was the re-release of the Joshua Tree. Okay, <laughs> it wasn't even a new album. <laughs> yeah, right. And it was on vinyl, and right. it was you know it's right. really cool in this box set. But it was the feeling that I had when I first bought OK Computer by Radiohead. Right. It was the feeling I had when I first put What's the Story Morning Glory into my CD player as a 16-year-old. And I haven't had that, whether I've been buying something digitally or physically, mm-hmm. in a long, long time. And I think there are, you know, there's artists like um, Adele. Mm-hmm. I think would be a, a good example where there's a lot of thought and a lot of intelligence that are going into yeah. these songs. Those are really, really songs. well written songs. And and there's a uh, an atmosphere about her albums that are very distinct, one album to the next. But that used to be a regular thing. That was every album was like that. Yeah. When I was fifteen, sixteen, and I this is going to make me sound like well, back in my day, you know, the good old days. But there is something I think that has been diluted about that experience and you know we could potentially blame steve jobs for creating the (laughs) the the single song market with i whatever it is but i don't know there's something about me that is gonna that just mourns the fact that i don't think the world is ever gonna get that experience again Mm -hmm. man that was a deep dive yeah it was (laughs) (laughs) no that was really good that was really fun i really like that Such a good riff.